name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among them, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your divine love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, it instruct the hearts of your faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by the same Spirit may be truly wise, never rejoice in his consolation to the same Christ our Lord. Holy Lady Grace, St. Joseph, Father Terry. St. Nisha Leola, St. Rose of Lima, all God's angels and saints. In the name of the Father, and the Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Is it comfortable for you, the, the air conditioning? Is that okay? Yes. Not too cold? Or, okay, good. Um, I guess we could probably close the door. Okay, I'd like to start off with a, uh, a, a catechetical story, given, given we have teachers here. Uh, the, te- the, the real secret of, uh, of teaching in the Catholic school is having Christ in the center. Okay? Christ in the center, we know that Mary is the quickest way to Christ. But also, um, as teachers, uh, the greatest teacher is Jesus Christ. And he was the master of telling stories. So to be a good teacher, we have to know how to tell a story. When, where, how, the right context. And Jesus taught what are called parables. Uh, I like to start off by um, telling an anecdote of what happened years ago in our confirmation program. This is before you came. This is probably about 20 years ago. Uh, we had a teacher, uh, she was the aunt of uh, one of the one of the best baseball players in baseball. He was one of the best for about four or five years. And um, I asked the aunt if uh, he would be able to come in and give the teenage kids a talk. And I thought, well, it's, it's not going to happen, but I've got nothing to lose. So... Uh, he came, and um, so he was there in front of 300 confirmation students giving giving a half-day retreat, and um, he's from Southern California, and uh, about 6'1", probably about uh, 210 pounds, muscular, handsome, very attractive. Kind of like a Bible thumper, not a, not a professional teacher, but just speaking from his heart. And um, he gave each one of the students a um, a picture, a three by five picture of uh, of a tandem bike. A tandem bike means a, a double bike. No, you got the front seat and the back seat. And what he said was this is uh, when I was playing baseball, he was playing baseball on 
Well, it was a very mediocre team, and it was a mediocre team except about 15 years ago when they did win the World Series, no? It happened to be the Kansas City Royals. And uh, he was about to be dropped, either traded, the way they do it in baseball, either they trade you or they drop you to the minor leagues, AAA, no? So um, one of his friends came in, and his friend was a born-again Christian, not a Catholic. And he said, you know, you're doing it wrong. You see this tandem bike? You're in the front seat, and Jesus is in the back seat. Got to change positions. It doesn't work that way. So he understood that he had to get back to the practice of the faith because he's a Catholic, brought up and raised as a Catholic. So apparently, he probably made a good confession and that year, he hit way over 300. Now, I don't know if you know anything about baseball, no? But uh, if you know anything about baseball, uh, 200 is very poor. 250 is average. 275, you're a good hitter. Uh, you're hitting over 300. Uh, you're, um, you're, you're, you're close to being best in the world in that sport. So he hit like 325. In the following year, he had like 340. Then one year, remember, he was about 375 into August. Which is uh, almost Ty Cobb, if you've ever heard of him, no? And um, then he retired a couple years ago. And he opened up the only Catholic baseball camp in the world in San Diego. Okay? Now, if you don't follow baseball, you... you, you you probably won't know his name. is His name is Mike Sweeney, and maybe you've never heard of baseball, but he was uh, he was one of the best in the world as a hitter about 20 years ago. So he told the story of these kids, and the story was that in your life you're going to be on a bike, okay? You're on the bike, but you have to make sure that you can't be driving. You have to let someone else drive. And that person is Jesus Christ. Okay? I mean, it's a, it's a cool story that you can, you can use as teachers, whether, you, whether or not you're speaking to a group of PhD students, you're teaching to the first graders. I mean, it's understandable, the story, applicable as the parables of Jesus are. So as... Uh, as teachers, you want to make, make sure that Jesus Christ is in the center of your life. And then he's going to be in the center of your life as a teacher. Because if you're trying to put Jesus Christ in the center of, of the life of your children, and he's not in your life, it just doesn't work. Uh, it just doesn't work. I mean, you, you really can't give what you don't have. So, really to be a good teacher, you have to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, the greatest of all teachers. So, that's my, uh, that's my intro to our presentation today. <clears throat> so, uh, Marina asked me to give this talk, and probably given that you have a religious nun with you, you probably know that there is a difference between a diocesan priest and a religious priest. Most Catholics don't know. A priest is a priest, but 
I'm actually, I'm a religious priest. And um, I happen to be in a congregation. Once they asked how many, how many members you have in your religious congregation, and one of our members said, we don't go beyond 20,000. We're 150. No? Okay. So we've always been a relatively small congregation, the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. As soon as they say, oh, we know one, there's in Nairobi, another one is in Madagascar. No, that's the OMI, okay? <laughs> so we're the, we're the OMV. The OMI would be Oblates of Mary Immaculate, founded by St. Eugene, Eugene Mazanod. We were cousins being formed at the same time, but two different congregations. Now, a sister would tell you, if she talks about the religious life, we have a founder and we have a charism, okay? And what does a charism mean? It means the specific physiognomy that differentiates us from another congregation. And as Father John Hardin has pointed out, if we're not faithful to our charism, we're going to disappear. Okay? We, will, we will go defunct if we're not faithful to the charism that God has given to us. So given that my charism is also related to the name of my congregation, the OMV. It's Oblati Maria Vergine, because we're founded in Italy by an Italian founder. Our charism is uh, multifaceted, but the foundation is our, our charism is Marian. That's where we're oblates. If you study a little bit of your Latin, the oblasio, maybe you heard the word oblasio means oblation, and it means an offering of Jesus through Mary. So, um, my, my, my essential purpose in this, uh, this uh, brief presentation is to make sure that Jesus is going to be in the center of your life, but I would hope to try to instill within you uh, a greater love for the Blessed Mother. So that's the purpose of my talk. Now, hopefully you already have some type of devotion to Mary, as I, you know, I don't know you, but I hope that you have some type of devotion to Mary. If you, if you do, uh, thanks be to God, but uh, also go deeper in your consecration to Mary. I made my first consecration to Mary probably before most of you weren't even born yet in 76 and after that I wanted to become a priest so I made it through St. Louis to Montfort and after that moment basically the Blessed Mother uh, drew me into becoming a priest. No? So uh, if you've already consecrated yourself to Mary maybe some of you have this might be good this might be a good idea to go deeper into that consecration. All right. Uh, my presentation will be will be double. I'm going to try to give you a, a, a mini course on on a good Catholic Mariology. Okay. Given they just came back from um, came back from lunch. I'll try to give you a, a, a culinary analogy. 
Okay, a culinary contemplation. Okay. okay. Having lived in Italy for seven years, uh, I like Italian food, and I, I like Olive Garden. Okay. But what I like best in Olive Garden is I like their salads. No, I don't know if you've ever heard of Olive Garden. Okay. Okay. Most of you. Your paycheck only allows you to go to McDonald's, but one day, <laughs> one day you'll be able to go to Olive Garden, no? After you get a raise or a bonus after Christmas, okay? Okay, the salad, uh, and I'm not a good cook. I say that I cook twice a year uh, on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Those are the only days that I cook because those are days of fasting, no? <laughs> okay. But you have. You have the substance, which is going to be lettuce, it's going to be carrots, it's going to be cucumbers, it's going to be a lot of different things. All right. But if you have that Olive Garden salad, but you don't have the condiments, it's, uh, it's pretty, um, pretty bland, huh? Pretty bland. But once you mix it with those condiments... As the Italian, mamma mia. Ah. <laughs> so, a proper Mariology, you might compare it to having a good Olive Garden salad. The salad is what is called the dogma, and the condiments would be the devotion. So, I've been out giving. Um, Marian Consecration LA and, and Orange uh, over the past 10 years, going to parishes where I get 150 to 400 people that I'm preparing to consecrate themselves to Mary. And um, most of my work is done in Spanish, among the, among the Mexicanos, okay, the Spanish, no? And I notice, and it might even be your case, that these people have they've got the condiments of the salad running through their blood. They've got, they've got the devotion. But what is often lacking is the dogmatic part. So I'm going to try to do, in this limit, I'm going to try to give you the dogmatic part, then I'll give you some devotions. And then afterward, if you want, I have some of the books that I've written. One of the books that I wrote, the last book I wrote, is a combination of both Marian dogmas and devotion. Dogmas and devotion, there has to be a harmonious blend of both of them. And if it's, it's just dogma, it's like the salad without the condiments. And if it's just devotion, it's like just eating the oil, the vinegar, and the bacon pieces, okay? And the parsley, and the garlic too, okay? Make sure you're not teaching after the garlic though, okay? Mm-hmm. Hello, how was it going? <laughs> So there has to be a harmonious blend between both of those. So dogma without devotion degenerates into, rather devotion devotion without dogma degenerates into sentimentalism. Okay, into sentimentalism. 
Whereas dogma without the devotion can be very arid and dry. And if you want to see the one person, the one person in the Catholic Church that has a harmonious blend of dogma and devotion is JP2. I had the privilege of being ordained by JP2 back in Rome many years ago, no? But if you've ever done any of his, uh, you've ever done any of his uh, writings, and hopefully as teachers, you know, you're exposed to John Paul II, uh, he has this really tender love for the Blessed Mother. The place that he visited most in his pontificate was Our Lady Guadalupe in Mexico. Did you know that? Almost right away after being consecrated, he he goes to Lady Guadalupe, he kneels down, he consecrates his pontificate to JP2 with his papal lema, well that's Spanish, papal motto, which is totus tuus ego sum, which is taken from St. Louis de Montfort, I'm all your Jesus through Mary. So he has a lot of devotion, but uh, JP2, he's a, he's a deep thinker. And... Um, He's more of a philosopher, whereas Ratzinger is more of a theologian. So you had the two greatest philosopher and theologian living at the same time, side by side, for 25 years. A good combo, huh? <laughs> so let's, uh, let, let's offer you this um, theological insalata, as they say in Spanish, theological salad, okay? Dogma and devotion. So I'm just going to go through the dogmas and then uh, my book has uh, a good 30 devotions. I'll pull out three of what I believe to be the, um, the most, um, most important devotions that we can, we can grab onto. You know, I'd like to introduce this uh, uh, once, again, once again through a story. This story, I think I heard in 1976, uh, Father Quinn, who's giving a homily at Villanova that I graduated from in many years ago, okay? The good Augustinians, no? And this priest, Father Quinn, he recounted a story taken from a very famous Catholic magazine. It's called the, the Ligorian, okay? Now, uh, and this is the essence of the story. Uh, do any of you know what is called the iconoclastic heresy? Okay, the iconoclastic heresy. Uh, what, what that was is that many years ago, in the time of St. John Damascene, they tried to get rid of the icons and they tried to get rid of the statues and they try to get rid of the paintings and because they thought that that was a type of idolatry. So the modern iconoclasts obviously are the Jehovah Witnesses, okay? They'd be the modern iconoclasts. So after Vatican II, the United States was basically hit, hit, hit by a modern iconoclasticism in the United States in which they're trying to get rid of basically the uh, images and the statues and the stained glass windows. And thanks be to God that we have a lot of 
Mexicans and Filipinos that came to this country, you know, because you can't take that out of them. <laughs> yeah, thanks be to God. I mean, you ever visit a Mexican family or Filipino family? It's like a, it's, it's like a religious museum, right? No? Uh, but especially uh, the, the, the Anglos from where I came, basically you get rid of it. And you have to encounter God by your pure intellect and by reading the Bible. And that's the way it was for, for uh, a few decades. There's still traces of that. And I think that's disappearing little by little. So, there was a priest that came into a church, a new pastor, where the passage before him was just contaminated with, with um, modern iconoclasticism. And what he did was he took all the statues out of the church and in the basement he put the statue of the Blessed Mother. But it was a really beautiful statue. And it was there for several years. But the paint was coming off. It had cobwebs. And... Uh, but it was just a, a um, an impressively beautiful statue. So the new priest goes to a, goes to a paint shop, and he brings this uh, six foot statue of Mary to this paint shop, where you have some those workers are kind of uh, not daily communicants like some of you know. Pretty vulgar, pretty down to earth, and. Uh, so the priest gives it to the owner. The owner tells these four men to paint this statue. <laughs> they look at this statue. And a couple of them were ex-Catholics. A couple others were non-believers. So they start to paint the statue. Right away, they don't use any four-letter words anymore. <laughs> Mary looking at them. <laughs> right away. <no? laughs> And after a day's work, one of them who had been away from the church said, well, it's kind of a nice statue. I think we ought to start, start over the Hail Mary. <laughs> so they say Hail Mary. And then they're painting it for several days. And the, <laughs> the guys start to talk about Mary and their experience in the past, how there used to be an altar boy and this and that. And the owner says to the priest, Get this statue out of my shop. He's turning it into a chapel. <laughs> so the priest said, "Okay, just finish it, and I'll pay. I'll pay for the. I'll pay for the work done." All right. After that, after work is done, there's a niche in the church, in which uh, an empty niche in the church, where a statue was before. So they placed the statue there. Uh, the priest blesses it. And then a young woman, uh, with great, great devotion to Mary, says that I will place flowers in front of the statue every day. Get free of charge. I'll, I'll get the bouquet roses. I'll place it in front of her. And we'll just embellish the beauty of the statue. Already beautiful, but even more beautiful when you got flowers in front of it. So, the woman does it. And she's doing this for for a long time. And then she hits a moral snag. You go fishing, you got a snag, huh? In which uh, she falls in love with a non-believer. And she's decided that uh, 
she will get married in Las Vegas, one of those wedding chapels. So she decides to do this. Before heading off to Las Vegas, she would say goodbye to the priest that she knew well and just say goodbye. So she knocks on the rectory door. The priest opens up the door and she says, I'd like to just talk with you if we could. So he goes to the parlor there, they sit down and she says, seems as if my, my path is changing. I'm, I'm going to be marrying a, nun, a non-Catholic. We'll get, we'll get married in Las Vegas in, uh, in a civil wedding. And the priest the whole time is listening. And uh, when she's about to finish her conversation, he pulls out a pad of paper and starts to write down a little note. He takes the note, closes the note, gives it to her and says, do me a favor. I want you to go in front of the statue of Mary and when you open up this piece of paper and I want you to read it. Can you do that for me? Of course, of course Father. So she goes to the church where she's put fresh flowers in the morning. She kneels down, opens up the paper, and this is what was written. Mother Mary, you've always been my life, my sweetness, and my hope. I have loved you all my life, and I have shown my devotion to you by placing these flowers before you every day. But it looks as if my, my path in life has changed. I'm leaving you never to come back again. Goodbye. Two hours later, the priest went to close the door and the woman was in tears for two hours. And to make a long story, she dropped the guy like a hot potato. <laughs> he fell in love with a good Catholic and married and had a happy life. Great story, huh? Okay, interpret it. Because... Okay? Not only do you read literature, but you have to know how to interpret it. Okay? Interpret it. The first part of the story shows how Mary purifies the environment. In other words, you cannot have Mary deeply rooted within you and have sin. They're diametrically opposed, like oil and vinegar. So if you want to have you want to have purity within your, your yourself, your heart, your mind, your soul, your family, your school. Invite Mary. A saint spend Ave Maria Purisma sin pecado concebido. No? Yeah. Invite Mary. So she she'll purify the environment of the bad odor of sin. And she'll help us to be, as Paul says, be the, be the fragrance of Christ. We're called be the fragrance of Christ. Amen. Huh? And what else does she do? Related, she, she helps us. She prevents us from falling off the moral cliff into the quicksand. So she purifies as well as she, she protects that's why we have her mantle of protection. We want her to protect us. So there's a second story for you. It's a great story, isn't it? There's a lot there. And I think if you, 
if you rewind your life and you have devo devotion in there, you've probably seen how the maybe you're here as teachers because of Mary, either implicitly or explicitly. I know I'm here. If it weren't for Mary, I would not be an oblate of the Virgin Mary. And I could tell you my Marian story, but I wouldn't be here if it were not for the presence of the Blessed Virgin Mary in my life. Eternally grateful. And I find, I find I, very rarely am I in desolation. You know that word, no? You know why? It's because Mary is my life, my sweetness, and the hope. You came a little bit late? I prayed the rosary with Marina. Oh, waste time, right? You prayed the chapter too, right? Got 15 minutes? Rip off another, another rosary. Hmm? Okay, so let's go, let's go through uh, the Marian dogmas and then I'll give you a few devotions. So what I'll do is I'll give you, I'll give you the, there are four Marian dogmas. Um, if any of you have ever heard of, uh, of Steubenville or, or Franciscan, uh, Mark Miravalli, who is the, one of the greatest Mariologists, is really trying to get the fifth dogma promoted and it hasn't been accepted yet, but he's, he's a harbinger of trying to promote the fifth Marian dogma. And I'll, I'll just mention that at the end. It's not a dogma yet, but it's in the, it's in, some of you have read Vatican too. It's in Lumen Gentium chapter 8 and Mater Redentoris of uh, John Paul II. So it's in the ordinary magisterium of the church. But it hasn't been proclaimed dogmatically yet. And uh, I hope and I pray that I will. You know? but, but I'm not going to be a pope. I would, I, would, I would proclaim three different Marian dogmas. Because what it, what it is is the co-redentrix, mediatrix, and coadjutrix. I would, I would proclaim three different dogmas because they're, they're different. You know? Co-redemptrix and mediatrix are two different things. You know? If you know your theology well. You know? Now let's, for, let's first speak about the Marian dogmas and then we maybe can talk about the possible future Marian dogma or dogmas. You know? Okay, what is a dogma? A dogma is a truth proclaimed by the faith that we have to believe if we want to be authentic Catholics. So it's not something optional. And um, you're teaching dogma to the children, even though you're not maybe mentioning, the Trinity is a dogma. The Incarnation is a dogma. Original sin is a dogma. Seven sacraments. These are dogmatic statements. And once proclaimed, they're not going to be changed. Okay, there are, there are four Marian dogmas, uh, and I'll go through them quickly for lack of time. Okay, the first... I'll give you the four, then I'll explain each one in about five minutes. Okay, the first is the Immaculate Conception. Okay, the second is Mary's Divine Maternity. Okay, the third is Mary's Perpetual Virginity. And the fourth is what we celebrated about nine days ago. Eight days ago, the Assumption of Mary. So those are the four Marian dogmas. You would be surprised. Myself visiting many, many, many parishes in ten years, I don't think I remember anyone ever told me those four dogmas. No, I don't remember anyone. No, in a certain sense, if we really love Mary, not knowing those dogmas for me, that casts me into desolation. 
we should all know those four marrying dogmas. And not simply the names, but also to be able to explain them. And um, if your teachers, if, you, if, this is a, if this is a good Catholic school, I hope by the time, if they're graduating from eighth grade, that they'll, they'll all know what the four marrying dogmas are. Or if, or if you're, some of your parents, make sure that you teach your children what these marrying dogmas are. So let's go through them. Okay, the Immaculate Conception. Chronologically, the Immaculate Conception is the greatest, or rather the first of all the Marian dogmas. And this was, this was believed by the apostles. They always believed it. But it wasn't proclaimed until 1854 by Pope Pius XII. Um, the document is Ineffabilis Deus. Uh, 18, 1854. Oh, Pope Pius IX. Did I say the 12th? Okay, I'm sorry. Pope Pius IX, yeah. Thank you. He wasn't even born yet, was he? No? Okay. So that was proclaimed by Pope Pius IX in 1854. And in 1858, Mary will appear 18 times to a little girl in France, and her name is Bernadette Soubirou. And at the end, she asks, who are you? And this beautiful woman dressed in white with a blue sash, lifts her eyes to heaven and says, Je suis l'Immaculée Conception. Parlez-vous français? Je suis l'Immaculée Conception. I am the Immaculate Conception. So see how the approved Marian apparitions are just going to be confirming the dogmatic statement. So Mary appears in this approved apparition like Lourdes or France or La Salette or Guadalupe. She's always going to be confirming what the church has always taught. Okay, what does the Immaculate Conception mean? It means that Mary was conceived without the stain of original sin. That's what it means. So, there in the moment, there in the moment of conception, the moment of our conception, we are contaminated with original sin. Everyone, except except for Mary, and of course Christ, her son. But all of us receive that the very moment of our conception. Baptism washes it clean. The moment of our conception, we are we are contaminated with the with the, with the poison of original sin. Mary was, Mary was uh, preserved of that. And that's the, the key word that you have in the document of Pius IX. She was preserved from the stain of original sin. And I, kinda li I, 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 I like to quote this uh, the, the Protestant 
poet, his name is Wordsworth. No? Wordsworth was a Protestant poet and he, he admired the Immaculate Conception. He said that Mary is our tainted nature's solitary boast. Wow. Wordsworth, a very famous English poet. And he didn't even believe, he didn't believe in the Catholic Church, but he did believe in the Immaculate Conception. Now, you've heard of Thomas Aquinas. I hope you have, right? Thomas Aquinas says that it is, in Latin, is conveniente. It was convenient that that be because if Jesus is going to enter into the world, if you don't have the Immaculate Conception, he'll be entering into the world as God, but with a tainted human nature, which Aquinas says would be an abomination. Imagine Jesus is tainted in his human nature. Okay, the Immaculate Conception. For, for us who live in this country, for us who live in this country, the Immaculate Conception, that's our patroness. You know that? The patroness of the Americas is our Lady Guadalupe. But the patroness of the United States is the Immaculate Conception. And if you're ever going to make a, a pilgrimage to Washington, D.C., you'll have to visit the most beautiful church in our country. It's the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception. Any of you ever been there? Beautiful, isn't it? It's the... It's the Saint, uh, this, this Saint Peter's of the United States. It's, it's magnificent. It's huge. It's got these little chapel and our little, little Guadalupe. So if you go there, you have to make make a visit to our national shrine. And we celebrate the Immaculate Conception every year, December eighth. December eighth is the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. A means by which we can honor the Immaculate Conception is what Jordan has around his collar there. He's got a cross, but he also has a medal of, of the, uh, technically it's called the Immaculate Conception. We call it the, the, Milac, the, the, the uh, Miraculous Medal. But the technical name is the Medal of the Immaculate Conception but it became known as the medal of the miraculous medal because of many, many miracles that have come as a result of that. So that's a way in which we can be honoring the Immaculate Conception. And another way we can be honoring is by, by saying this prayer, O Mary, conceive without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Which, by the way, is written around the oval image itself. O Mary, conceive without sin. Pray for us over course to thee. Okay. Let's move on to the, to the second. The second Marian privilege or dogma is Mary's divine maternity. Okay. What is Mary's divine maternity? What does that mean? Maternity Okay, you got a little baby there. You were in the maternity ward you know, a few months ago, right? Maternity refers to motherhood. So when we say divine maternity, what does that mean? And Mary is the mother of God. 
Now, of all of the Marian privileges, of the four, uh, by far that's the greatest. And that was proclaimed in the year 431 in the Council of Ephesus, where according to tradition, Mary lived with St. John after Jesus died and rose from the dead. On the island of Patmos, read the book of Revelation. And it simply means this, that Mary is truly the mother of God. We celebrate that every Christmas. We also celebrate on, on January 1st, which is the solemnity of Mary, the mother of God. And indirectly Advent, because we're getting ready for Mary to bring forth Jesus in the, the three weeks of Christmas, two and a half weeks of Christmas. All right. Another way in which you can honor it is by honoring Our Lady Guadalupe. Have any of you, any of you have a, a picture of Our Lady Guadalupe? Have you ever looked at it? If you come to our church, you're going to see a beautiful sta- uh, painting of Our Lady Guadalupe. Now, according to According to the Mexican history, the pregnant woman back 450 years ago would have a black sash around her waist when she was with child. So if you look, Mary's got a black sash around her waist because she she is with child. So that's a way in which we can be honoring the divine maternity Mary. And the opposite of divine maternity Mary is the reality of abortion. That's the opposite. They want to make sure that all women have Mary as their model and then they and that they value life. No. Life is precious. From the moment of conception until natural death. The moment of conception until natural death, life is precious. I'll tell you a very interesting story. Uh, about 50 years ago, right when, when Roe vs. Wade was being legalized, remember that, 1973, uh, January 22nd, there was a woman that went to um, a clinic uh, to um, do a pregnancy test, and the uh, the doctor said that you're you're, you're expecting child, and they asked her what she was going to do with it. And the woman was already in her 40s, no? With a lot of kids already. And the woman said, what do you mean, what am I going to do with it? Well, you know, you're in your 40s, you have a big family already, maybe you're considering not having it. And the woman confronted the doctor and said, did you ever do an abortion? And this doctor was Catholic. And she shut him down. And she stormed out of the, uh, the clinic there and said, I will never come back here again because you've insulted me by making a reference that I'm going to abort my baby. So she goes to another doctor. And then on October 26th, uh, 1973, she was about 43 years old. She gives birth to a beautiful little girl. Beautiful little girl. And she, she named the little girl after the Blessed Mother. The name of the girl was Maria Teresa, Mary Therese. Now that little girl, uh, she's a graduate from Steubenville, Franciscan, married a man from Franciscan. She's married in the church. 
She's got eight children, and she has a brother who's actually a priest who is talking to you right now. <laughs> so that was my mom and my, my baby sister. Yeah. yeah, beautiful story. And I'm her padrino, as well as the padrino of one of her cuatitas. She, 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 got, she got twins, no? I was with her last week on vacation. No? Just the joy of the family. No? Beautiful. In my family, we have three different generations, born in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They're three different generations, really. No? Like my mom, if God gives a child, God will provide God will provide them. No? So that's uh, the divine maternity. Mary is the, she's the mother of God. Third is, third is Mary's perpetual virginity. So Mary was virgin before the birth of Jesus, during the birth of Jesus, and after the birth of Jesus. So before, during, and after. Before, we actually find that in the Annunciation. That the angel says that the Holy Spirit will come over you, the Shekinah. The Holy Spirit will descend upon you and you'll conceive through the power of the Holy Spirit. During, here's the analogy I use. Okay, it's, uh, it's uh, 12 noon in your house, Sunday, and uh, you open up the curtains, and the sun is beaming in, radiating, emanating light in your house. So the rays of light did not break the window, did they? But they filled the room with light. So that's what happened. Jesus radiated, emanated from Mary's womb without Mary losing her virginity. Okay? Remember, it's a good one, huh? Yeah. So in the moment of Mary's birth, Mary did not lose her virginity either. And after, Protestants say, well, Jesus was preaching and said, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are out there waiting for you. Jesus said, who is my mother, my brother, and my sister? Whoever does the will of my Heavenly Father, my mother, my brother, and my sister. So, uh, Jesus did not have any biological brothers and sisters, but spiritual brothers and sisters, yes. Among which, I'm one of them, and you are too. We're the spiritual sons and daughters of Mary. Okay, then the fourth Marian dogma was proclaimed by Pope Pius XII, November 1st. Munificentimus Deus would be the papal bull, in which Mary, Mary, according to what the church teaches, at the end of her life, Mary was taken up into heaven in body and soul. So there's only two people that are proclaimed to be in heaven now in body and soul. And that would be Jesus through the power of the ascension, second glorious mystery. 
and then Mary through being elevated and taken up to heaven and the uh, and the assumption. Have any of you ever heard of Father Patrick Payton? No? Okay, Father Patrick Payton was the rosary priest who used to he used to preach the family that prays together, stays together. I'm sure you've probably heard that, no? Father, the family that prays together, stays together. He actually made the 15 mysteries of the rosary from Hollywood. There's a beautiful, beautiful uh, movie on the 15 mysteries of the rosary. And he goes through all these. And um, the, the assumption he presents this way that Mary, at the end of her life, she goes from Ephesus, comes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, she's, she's checking out the place where Jesus suffered before he was taken up to heaven. And then Mary, accompanied by John, goes to the cynical, which is the upper, the upper room. And then she goes to, to an adjacent room, lays down, and she's about to leave this world. And she's going to dismiss, say farewell, to all the apostles that are still living. So Peter delays in coming for some reason. When he finally arrives, John says, Peter, where you been? She's been waiting for you. Peter, where you been? She's been waiting for you. Peter said, where is she? She's in the adjacent room there. So he opens up the door. Mary's laying in the bed there. Peter falls to his knees and says, Dear lady. And she takes his hand, caresses Peter, and Peter says this, Before you go to heaven, I want to ask you a favor. What would you like, Peter? And he says, When you go to heaven, I want you to tell the Lord that I love him. And Mary says to him, Well, Peter, he already knows that. And then Peter says, But it sounds much better from your lips. Sounds much better from your lips. So when you tell Jesus you love him through Mary, it sounds much better from her lips, from her heart. So there we have the four Marian dogmas. All right, there's the first part of the salad. Got to put the condiments on, right? So, you give me a couple more minutes. I just, I'm going to suggest three Marian devotions, and if you want to check out my book, you can get another another about another thirty. But I like to just present to you the condiments on the salad now. Okay. Okay. The first is this: is uh, that all of us. All of us should have a great, great love for the rosary. Okay? You hear me? Have a great, great love for the rosary. Okay, you call the shots. See, start off the, start off the day of praying the rosary. I mean, you're, the, you're the, the big man on campus. You're the big banana, as we say in New York, huh? Or the big cheese, huh? Okay? Okay. 
I mean, I'm not a principal of school, but for me, no brainer. I, I would start off the day with the rosary. Yeah, if, you, if the people don't want to start off by giving Mary a lot of love, you have to look for another school. And if if you place Mary in a very prominent place, he's going to bless, he's going to bless your school. Try it. I tell parents, you, you have to pray the rosary with your kids. And when the kids complain, I say, okay, what, you, what are you going to tell the kids? Oh, you don't want to pray the rosary? Okay, we're going to pray two rosaries, okay? <laughs> no, we're not going to pray a decade. We'll pray two rosaries. You're, you're watching some video, you're playing some video game for two hours. You can't get married. 14, 15 minutes. Hey. And you know, one of the greatest ways to show love for someone is give that person time. Give the person time. The financial expert says time is money, but if we who, who deal in education, love is shown by the, the time we're willing to give to our children, to our family, that's a manifestation of love, giving time. What do you love? You love what you dedicate most of your time, energy, and money toward. Yeah, examine your conscience. Huh? Examine your conscience. That's where your love is. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Jesus says it very clearly. I studied with the Augustinians, so obviously St. Augustine says this, the human heart is made to love. The human heart is made to love. But we have to choose wisely the object of our love and then love with all our hearts. Yeah, Pure Augustine. True, he's an intellectual, but Augustine, you ever see a picture? He's got his heart in his hand, He's got the mitre and the crozier, no? He's got the heart. O oh Lord, you made a heart for thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So, every time we say the Hail Mary, every time we say the Hail Mary, we're saying, Mary, I love you. Teach your children that. They can understand that. They can understand that. Every time you say, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, you're saying, Mary, I love you. Some of you have heard of Fulton Sheen, huh? Have you? I met him once. Guess I'm betraying my age, huh? My dad, who worked on Wall Street, New York, he bumped into him because he lived downtown. My dad was going out of a restaurant. He was coming in and he bumped into him. And then my dad is a third-class relic, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I am too because JP too, huh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You ever want to get good stories for your teaching? Dive into shame. Many of my preachings, you heard me, I'm, I'm quoting this story from Sheen. No? I think he's probably the greatest American storyteller in this country. No? And the reason why he's not being beatified 
is, is the devil. Can you, can you give me a better model for priest and bishop than a potent sheen? Okay, St. Alphonsus, okay, St. Francis Sales, but a modern priest and bishop, I don't think there's anyone. I mean, he, he's, a pioneer of, he's a pioneer of TV and radio. He, he was on radio and TV. He, built, he beat up Milton Berle, who was the most famous comedian in the world. Uncle Milty, they called him, no? But he, um, he tells a story. He's traveling on a plane. And this young woman sits next to him and he pulls out his rosary. And um, the young woman says, oh, I'm a college graduate. That's, that's for old ladies. It's, it's so boring. You're always repeating the same thing. Always the same thing. She says, hey, do you have a boyfriend? Oh, yes, I have a fiancé. We're madly in love. Oh, okay. Did he ever tell you he loves you? Oh, of course. When? Before boarding. Before that, in the car. Before that, the night before. Before that, the night before that. Well, how boring. Always the same thing, huh? <laughs> you never... And if you're a mother, you ever tell your mother, Mom, I love you? And you say it the following day, Mom, I love you. Don't say that. I heard that yesterday, no? <laughs> Don't say that. You think I'm dumb? You think I've got, uh, you think I've got dementia? Come on. <laughs> heard the story of a married couple. They were married for 30 years. And the wife says to him, I never hear you tell me you love me. You said, I told you the day of the wedding, if I change my mind, I will tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Are are any of you married here? None of you? So few of you are married? Two or three of you are married? No? They're married, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So what are, the th- what are the three rings of the married life? Do you know what the three rings of the married life are? It's the engagement ring, <laughs> it's the wedding ring, and it's suffering. <laughs> you like that one, don't you? <laughs> You're anticipating that. <laughs> See, love is blind, the marriage restores the sight, right? (laughs) I always tell the people, I have a degree in English literature, philosophy, theology, and jokeology. That's a good one. (laughs) So the first devotion is uh, pray the rosary. Okay, the second Marian devotion is to wear the scapular. And I get the cloth one, okay? Yeah, oh, this is just a small one. Is, it, is that cloth? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, because... Uh, the Blessed Mother doesn't want either the metal unless you're in the jungle. You might say L.A. is a cement jungle, right? Okay. Um, 
But you have always always wear your scapula, okay? I'll show you this is uh, the scapula that my mother made for me. It's not artistic, it's more prosaic than artistic. But you got the reason why it's this because I'm 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 a born athlete and I do a lot of sports and if I, I have one like that I'll rip it apart within about two or three weeks, no? And can, can you feel that? How about that? So my mom sewed the miraculous medal inside and then you got the medal of Saint Benedict, huh? So I got the miraculous medal and sewed inside and then I got the um, medal of St. Benedict. So this is a very, a very important Marian devotion. And it's, not a, it's not a good luck charm. Okay? okay, I'm going to put it on. I'm going to be a chola of Hawaiian Gardens and I'm going to fight those in Compton. No, I'm not going to get <laughs> shot by a bullet, no? no? From East L.A., worse yet, huh? Now the gardens are pretty scary. Be careful. But they're not out now. They're out in the evening. Okay. So it's not a superstition. But wearing the scapula is an exterior sign that you belong to Mary. You're in the family of Mary. You're in the school of Mary. Teachers, huh? You're in the school and you're in the heart of Mary. I have probably, in the past 10 years, I've imposed probably, I'd say, probably 40,000 scapulas on people. I'm going to probably win a record, huh? Because at the end of the consecration program, part of the consecration is to place the scapula on them, then pray the formula in which they're enrolled in the Carmelite order, they become part of the Carmelite order and receive the blessings from the Carmelites. So, pray the rosary and also wear the scapula. Did you know every time you kiss the scapula that you receive an indulgence? Did you know that? Now you know it, okay? Learn something new every day, right? So every time you kiss the scapula, you receive a, a partial indulgence, no? So you got your Uncle Bill is in purgatory for five years, oh, four years, no, three years, two years. Hi, Uncle Bill, pray for me now. <laughs> so uh, we kind of laugh at that, but but that kissing the scapular is saying, "Mary, I love you." And if you say, "Mary, I love you," that's powerful. Yeah, Mary, Mary experiences the love of her children when, when they say it to her. So make sure that you wear the scapula. Jordan, how many, how many kids in the school? Right now, uh, about 75. Good. Wouldn't it be beautiful to have a ceremony in which your the children, wouldn't that be beautiful? Any Catholics here? <laughs> or maybe maybe the miraculous medal, then when they make they make their first communion, the scapula. 
Because, you know, if, you, if your teachers, especially the Montessori school, everything is basically de depends a lot upon contact with physical objects, right? So maybe think about that. Hmm? Anything we can do to really promote Mary and devotion, some exterior sign of our consecration to Mary, I take advantage of that. Remember the story, the kinoclasm story, remember that. Hmm? All right, then the, la the, the third among many devotions would be what Jordan has is the miraculous medal. The miraculous medal. And if you've never read this story, I really encourage you to read this, this the story of the origin of the miraculous medal. Do any of you aware of the, the origin of the miraculous medal? Catherine Lavery was a nun in 1830, she was a visitation nun of uh, St. Vincent de Paul, and she was in her room at night, and someone woke her up, it was her guardian angel, and she goes in the church, and Mary is sitting in the chair of the priest. Mar Mary's sitting there in the chair of the priest, and Mary beckons her, come close, come close, come closer, come closer. And read in my Marian Compendium. Come closer. And she actually puts her hands in the lap of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I don't think there's any approved apparition where she actually touches the Blessed Mother, her cloak. And then what happens is they have a long conversation. That's what we're called to do. Have long conversations with Mary. Ignatius calls it Marian colloquy, right? Long conversation with Mary. Then there was more than one apparition. Later on, Mary appears and presents to her the image of the miraculous medal, and you got the front and you got the back. And our lady said, I want this medal to be made. But she kept this a secret for more than 30 years. And you say that women can't keep secrets, huh? <laughs> Think about that, no? And finally, finally, the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, now is the time to talk to your confessor to have this miraculous medal made and then spread it far and wide. And almost right away, whoever wore the medal showing there was consecration to Mary, there are miracles. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you one. Once again, Right around Roe vs. Wade, shortly after my, my mom had my baby sister Mary, around 74, uh, they were opening abortion clinics in the country. Uh, my parents lived in Massachusetts then, and I was living in Philadelphia where we have the university. And they opened up an abortion clinic, and my mother and one of her friends went to the abortion clinic on the sly, clandestine, and they hid a miraculous medal in the bricks. Then they went to the church, they prayed the rosary, and made a holy hour. Within a week, the abortion clinic closed. What do you think? You might say, well, that, that was just coincidence. Uh -uh. I think two holy women 
placing that medal there, praying the rosary in front of the Blessed Sacrament, two women that love life. We were nine altogether. They love having families and children. That was a sign. That was a sign that Mary was very pleased with these two women that this abortion clinic should not exist because that's killing unborn babies. So, there we have our presentation. Now, um, what I would like to suggest is um, I I have, uh, earlier this morning, I was thinking about a group like you. I have a book. I've written four books. This book is Total Consecration of Jesus Through the Message of the Rosary. I would suggest that all of you do it. And what you might do is this. You might start the first week, the first week of September, so you can maybe get prepared for it. Maybe you can do it either individually, maybe as a group. And then after a month, how about October 7th? La Victoria, La Virgen de Victoria, Lepanto. That is Our Lady of the Rosary, October 7th. And October is the month of the Rosary. I can already read Jordan's mind. Father Room, that's a great idea. I'm going to tell the teachers we're going to do it. Oh, good. Uh, am I a good mind reader? Yes, you are. <laughs> You're a great idea. Once we get back, I'll tell me. I really think that that father was inspired when he said that. No. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, I'd like to say a hail Mary. And I'll give you a blessing, and um, I'll pray uh, in my mass this evening that this will be the best year of your life. Okay, hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and bless the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now the hour of Glory be to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.